Uh, I want to encourage you um, to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James. Um, as you guys know, we are walking our way through uh, James's epistle. It's in the very back of your New Testament. Um, you should also find a copy of tonight's sermon text in your worship guide. Um, so if it's easier to follow along with you there, please do. Um, we chose this book of James, and I know I've said this before, but I, I want to make sure that I keep saying it again. But we've chosen this book of James with the um, desire um, to just see the Lord grow and mature Grace Fellowship in these days together. We're just praying for a new season in the life of our church, that he would bring a measure of, of maturity in some ways to us. And it turns out that James is an ideal book um, in, our, in our Bible um, for just that task. So we're walking through it together. It's a wisdom book in many ways. I've mentioned that in some ways you could consider James in some ways, like a New Testament equivalent to a book like the book of Proverbs. Um, and as has been our custom, in addition to reading from James, I'm going to pair this with another reading, um, in this case, from the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 22, to listen closely and carefully um, to this, um, God's word to us and for us. Genesis 22. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. And now from the book of James. beginning in verse 14 of chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed 
by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see, that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in your kindness and in your mercy, we ask in this moment that you would do, Lord, the thing that only you can do. Lord, and that is by the power of your spirit that you um, would illuminate these words, these hard words in your word. You would shine light on them. You'd shine light on the dark places in our hearts and that you would use these words to restore us, to refresh us, to revive us. Lord, to give us great hope in our Lord Jesus. So that's our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Um, So not very long ago, I was driving in my car. I don't remember exactly where I was going, but as I was on my way there, suddenly a noise sounded in my car, a kind of dinging noise. And with that dinging noise came a light that suddenly appeared in the shape of a icon of some kind on the dashboard of my car. So this light comes up, it's some kind of warning light, some sort of problem light, and I called a mechanic who happens to also be a good friend of mine, and uh, he notices it's my number, and he's like, hey, man, and I said, hey, man, I said, a light just kind of came on my dashboard. Uh, What does it mean? And this friend of mine says, well, it means something's broken, (laughs) which of course was true. And I say that because I think it's a good way to think about this letter that James writes. I think he's doing something similar. He's looking out across the Christian community that's scattered across the known world at this time, and he's seeing some warning lights begin to appear, if you will, on the dashboard. And it's leading James to believe something's wrong. Something's not working here the way it's supposed to. So for example, if you've been following along, James looks and he sees that there are Christians who are tempted to give up in the midst of trial. He sees that as a warning and he says, there's there's something here that's wrong. I mean, he notices that there's a tendency for God's people to waffle back and forth between listening to God's wisdom, but also paying more attention to the world's wisdom. And he sees something's wrong. He sees, 
If you were with us two weeks ago, this anger and this frustration that is building up in their communities, they're angry and frustrated with each other and he sees that something's wrong. He sees that they are hearing God's word on a weekly basis, but they're not doing it, if you remember from a few weeks ago. And he notices again, there's something wrong. And last week, as our brother John preached to us, He's noticing that Christians in the communities are beginning to show favoritism. When somebody walks into their assemblies that perhaps is rich or wealthy and there's something to be gained from that person, they're saying to them things like, hey, how about you come sit right here? And he notices that there's something wrong. And tonight, in this section, if you heard me read it, James is here to confront another problem and confronts the right word. Okay, this text is supposed to be a confrontation. Okay, it's supposed to have an edge to it. And in particular, tonight he is confronting this idea that there are Christians who have faith, but this faith, this faith is not showing up in practical acts of love to people in need, particularly within their own communities. And James is here to confront that. And and I wanna just kind of tell you from the beginning um, that the tone of this text really is sort of, what's the word, Um, bristly. It's, It's kind of forceful. This passage is supposed to have an edge to it. So as I try to explain it, the way I'm gonna explain it is gonna have somewhat of an edge to it. But I want you to hang with me. It's supposed to have that effect in us in order to break us down in some ways so that we can look, of course, to Christ. So one paragraph at a time here, a few lines at a time, I'm going to talk through what's going on here. But there's this main thing I hope you hear tonight. This is the main thing. If you don't hear anything else I say, here's, here's the thing. I want to show you that in Christ, we are invited into a mature faith, a faith that actually works. Okay, we're invited into a mature faith, a faith that actually works. So let's take a look here at this first paragraph. Look with me at verses 14 to 17. James writes, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, it does not, if it does not have works, is dead. James is noticing something, something happening in the community. There's, there's no practical obedience that's traveling alongside of the faith. And this lack of practical obedience is that there are people in need in their congregation. But these Christians are claiming they have faith, and because they have faith, They don't necessarily need to worry about the person in practical need. And in fact, they're saying things to them like, go, be warm, go in peace, be filled. 
and doing nothing about their practical needs. Now, these, these words, these phrases, go in peace, be warm, be filled. In other words, the, the point is they notice the need, but they're saying something to them kind of like this. Um, yeah, you don't have food, you don't have clothing. Good luck with that. You don't have food, you don't have clothing. Bless your heart. You don't have food, you don't have clothing, I'm praying for you. In other words, part of the unique rub that is driving James insane is that there's kind of a spiritual cover that's painted over the lack of obedience. Now this is actually a theme that we see in several places in the scriptures. Throughout the pages of the prophets, for example, in the Old Testament, oftentimes God's people are ignoring the things that he's asked, but they're going to worship at the temple all the same, but it's not resulting in practical, concrete obedience. And James is saying that if that is the case, their faith is not alive. In other words, their faith isn't existent. In other words, there's no such thing as a living faith in God that does not translate into acts of love to those in their midst who are in need. There's no such thing. Let's keep looking, verses 18 and following. Because James notices another thing, that there are those in the community that believe somehow faith can be separated from works of obedience. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works. In other words, that these two things can be separated. And then James says, well, show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. And this is when it begins to become forceful and edgy. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. James again is trying to get them to see that faith and obedience go together and he's doing it with some forceful language. So for example, when he says, you believe that God is one, he's, he's referencing the, the great creed Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord is one. He's saying, so what? You believe in God, even demons believe, but it only makes them afraid. Your belief, your real belief is supposed to result in something real in your life, real action, real obedience tomorrow. In other words, just in intellectual belief in God is something even demons hold. And then look at what he says next. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? Y'all, this language again is strong. It's, it's literally something like this. Some of your translations actually might capture it this way. You stupid person. 
Or what kind of idiot are you? It's, it's harsh. Do you really need an example of what I'm talking about? Great, I'll give you three. And then James gives three examples. The first one is the example of Abraham, the classic figure in the biblical story of someone possessing faith. Abraham. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James is not saying that Abraham somehow earned favor with God, that he obeyed his way into his salvation. What James is saying is this faith that Abraham was given to walk off into the calling of God to be this blessing to the world, to move his family, to go to this promised land that was gonna be shown, all of that faith bubbling up inside of him resulted in some real live concrete acts of obedience, so much so that he was willing even to sacrifice his son to take hold of the promises of God. His faith and his works, his obedience went together. James says, Abraham, an example of the two going together. Here's a second example. James says, what about Rahab? Look at verse 25. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Again, this is another famous story from the Old Testament when a woman named Rahab was in the city of Jericho and she was a believer in God. But this belief in God, this faith that was inside of her worked its way out into a tangible act of obedience when she, at great risk to herself, sheltered spies of God's people. It's James's way of saying, see, her faith went alongside acts of true, concrete, real, not hypothetical obedience. James says, do you want another example? Because I have one more. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So this final example is just a, a simple one. And it's just a look at the human body, the human person, and realizing that um, we're whole, that we go together. So for example, it would make no sense if I said to you guys, hey guys, my mind and my emotions and my feeling, it's over there, but my body's gonna sit over here. If I said that to you, you'd be like, that's not possible, Joel. It's not like the inner parts of who I am can sit right there next to Mandy while the outer part of who I am can sit on the front row with John and April. Okay, as a man who likes to try to be in two places at one time, I'm tempted. But it doesn't work. And James is saying in the same way, if our faith in God is sort of, if you will, over here, but our acts of real live obedience is somehow not there at all. 
something's flashing on the dashboard. Something is wrong. So much so that James is saying, you might not really be talking about true biblical living faith. For faith is not walking Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday in real, non-hypothetical acts of love to those around us. We might not be talking about a living faith. That's what James is saying. And it is supposed to sit there on us heavy. We're supposed to hear the challenge of that. Which leaves me to think, okay, what are we supposed to do now? And let me tell you first a couple of things that I don't think we're supposed to do. In light of this confrontation that our faith must be accompanied by real, live, non-hypothetical, concrete acts of love, what we're not supposed to do is hear that in a sermon and say, well, that was a good talk. Um, Sabor Latino sound good for dinner, everybody? Remember a couple weeks ago, James says that would be like a person who finally had a chance to look at themselves in a mirror and just walks away. Here's another thing that we're not supposed to do. We're not supposed to hear this challenge that faith travels alongside real, live, non-hypothetical, concrete acts of obedience and think to ourselves, you know what, Joel, that's right, and I really hope fill in the blank just heard that right now. Or I really wish fill in the blank would be here to have heard that right now. Because that would come close to the warning James told us earlier of us being frustrated with everybody else for not getting it while all the while not being a doer of God's word. I think when we hear a confrontation from scripture like this, I think it's supposed to have a effect on us that's much like some kind of surgical procedure. It's supposed to cut and it's supposed to expose and it's supposed to sting a little bit so that infection, if you will, can be cleaned out. Y'all, my senior year of college, my friends and I decided to go on this trip over spring break to like the low country of South Carolina. And we were um, paddling in these canoes several miles from where we had parked our cars. This all seemed like a good idea at the time. And at some point, one of my friends got out of the canoe and the canoe tipped. And I put my hand down to balance the canoe. And I just kind of felt my hand sort of slide along something hard. You know, we write the canoe. I'm not thinking anything of it. I keep paddling. I just notice blood's like traveling down 
my elbow, my arm. And I look, and my hand's just completely gashed open, like deep. And for the children in the room, I'm not going to describe more. And I, and I get to the emergency room, and I have the thing kind of closed up like this to kind of keep it from bleeding, but it's full of mud. And the first thing that the ER doctor says to me is, oh, we're going to have to clean that out. And he just said, hey, look the other way. <laughs> it's not something you want to hear. So I looked the other way, and I don't know what happened next, but it stunk. A couple weeks later, um, something wasn't right, and I go back to the doctor, and the doctor says, we're going to have to open that up again. Look the other way. <laughs> and it and it stung. So this challenge is supposed to confront and sting, but let me just tell you the truth. Anytime the scriptures confront us and sting us, we must always remember that this kind of breaking down is actually a move to heal us. And most especially, it's the spirit reaching out a hand and trying to lead us from these words to Christ. In other words, there's a third thing we're not supposed to do, and that's not to sit here and say, oh, great, my faith is dead. I have no hope. Because a text like this is supposed to lead us by the hand to Christ. Let me just outline that for you briefly. First of all, Remember that our Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled all righteousness. His faith worked its way out into practical, real life, non-hypothetical acts of obedience, even obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's in his cross that he purchased for you forgiveness for sin. And as if that were not good enough, this forgiveness of sins that he has accomplished by the power of his spirit, if you have clung to him in faith, has been applied to you. And as if that were not good enough, this Jesus who went to the cross went into the tomb, but he was raised from the dead. In other words, if you're here tonight and it's in your heart and your soul that, oh, I don't know how alive my faith is. Maybe my faith tonight seems a little dead. I want to remind you that this God is particularly great at raising dead things to life. He resurrects not just as a thing that ex Jesus experienced, but as a thing that he promises by the power of his spirit to do in us again and again and again. And as if that were not good enough, Jesus was raised from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty where he rules the world by the word of his power. And he has given his spirit and his spirit breathes 
life into dead things. It, it cuts and it does surgery. The Spirit does surgery in our hearts in order to heal. The Spirit brings transformation from one degree of glory to, the another, to another, so much so that we will eventually arrive seeing Jesus face to face, completely mature, complete in him. See, it's the work of Christ that empowers obedience. And after this surgery happens, and after this looking to Jesus happens, and after we follow this passage, if you will, if you will to Christ, see, all of a sudden, this text opens up as a rich invitation to a living faith. So I'm gonna end tonight by just imagining with you a few ways that this passage of scripture can transform us in real, tangible ways. I don't know, say, tomorrow. So for example, I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine with me that person in your life, either literally or even metaphorically, who might be cold and hungry. Remember, this passage says that they were tempted to say, go, be warm and well-fed. But who is that in your life that might be cold because of loneliness, not be hungry because they need love and support and care and encouragement? Imagine right now a living faith that moves outside of the heart and bubbles up into a real, live, tangible expression toward them. I don't know, say tomorrow. Imagine a living faith inside of us that transforms, for example, and this is where James will go next week, into our words. So rather than words that get shot out of our mouths as poison to people, Imagine our words being shot out of our mouth with healing for people. How about this? Just imagine that curved in on ourselves posture that we find ourselves living in all the time. Do you know what I mean? Just that curved in on ourselves posture where, to be honest, we're sort of just looking at our iPhones all day long doing our thing, wrapped up in our own thing, surviving each week, filling our schedules with all kinds of things, riddled all the while by fear and anxiety of the worst thing happening to us, trying to keep all everybody's nap times and schedules in line, full of frustration because we're just not the person we wish we could be. We're flaking out on commitments. We're shackled by sin. We're searching the internet in dark places. We're living defeated. Imagine with me a real faith, a real breathing, living pulsing faith that helps us look beyond ourselves to Christ and then begin to look to others around us in real, live, non-hypothetical, concrete ways. See, you and I are invited. We're invited into a mature faith that actually works. It functions in the real things of our life. And maybe as a first step in that journey, of course, we are invited to come tonight 
to this table. See, when we come to this table, we are reminded of the very real, non-hypothetical, concrete things that Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. See, in a simple piece of bread, we're pointed, we're, we're told to take our eyes off of ourselves and to look to Jesus in his broken body that was broken for us. In a simple cup of wine, we're called to take our eyes off of ourselves and to look to Jesus' shed blood that was shed for you and for me. These simple elements are signs of those promises. They're seals that kind of press them down deeper into our hearts. When we come to this table, we're reminded that just like food nourishes our body, the nourishment that we're going to need for this faith of ours to be living alongside real life acts of obedience, we're gonna need that nourishment to come to us from outside of ourselves. Okay, let me just say it plainly. You're not gonna muster that up. I don't, it doesn't really matter how driven and talented you are. You're not gonna be able to muster that up. But you're gonna need his grace to nourish you so that you can follow him in very real ways. And finally, this table reminds us it's a foretaste, it's a nibble that anticipates a greater feast that is yet to come. See, we're told that there is a day that we will be complete in Christ. The good work that Jesus began in us, he will be faithful to complete until that day. When we come to this table, we celebrate in anticipation that that day surely coming, and by the power of God's spirit, we're on our way already. That's a cause to rejoice. But we do not presume to come to this table on account of our own righteousness. Lord, as we have looked in the mirror and seen often, we're curved in on ourselves, but we're not looking to you and to those around us. But we thank you that your exact character quality is to be the kind of Lord who always has mercy on sinners, who takes us who were far to bring us near, Lord, who gives us your own righteousness, your righteous life becomes ours. Lord, forgiveness is ours, fellowship with you as renewed human persons. Lord, is our story and our song. So in light of these things, I pray that we would be able to take with a heart full of joy and rejoicing. So would you be so kind as we eat this bread and we drink this cup to use it to restore us and to renew us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.